0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Yeah, he had a very, very simple goal, which was to stop his students from beating the crap out of each other. He was tasked with teaching this class of uh, particularly rambunctious young students. Uh, it was a in the middle of a very bad snowy winter in New England, and, and so they had to be stuck inside, and there weren't many indoor games
0: Welcome to 94 and More, presented by Bristol Studio. While a basketball court might be 94 feet, we believe it's limiting to solely look at this beautiful game as a sport. In our minds, it's closer to an art form, even a tool through which we can study the world and learn about ourselves. I'm your host, Jake Fenster, and on this podcast, we will explore the game of basketball, not only as a sport, but as a dynamic force that influences culture, builds bridges, and has the ability to shape our national conversation. Hope you enjoy. As always, feel free to reach out to us at 94 at bristol studio.com and follow us on Instagram at Bristol Studio and at 94 and more podcast. All right, let's get into the show. Today I'm joined by Nick Green. Nick, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I'm a writer. Originally from Chicago, I, I live in the Bay Area now, um, and I write mostly about sports, but a whole slew, a whole slew of other topics. Um, and uh, just had a book come out about basketball.
0: How did you get started uh, writing about sports?
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. Let's <laughs> let's see.
0: Um, it's. A t- I'm sure it's a, a long answer, but.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was time. always sort of a, a generalist um, and I wound up covering the 2016 NBA finals. I've always been a huge sports fan and basketball fan and, and wrote sort of here and there about it and, and I've been writing a little bit more seriously about sports specifically for Slate since that 2016 um, finals with uh, the Warriors and Cavs. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's, 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 you know, something I've always loved watching sports and, and, and so writing about it wasn't, uh, isn't too much of a stretch for me. At least I hope it doesn't come off that way. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious, what, what was your personal experience like with basketball? Did you play growing up? Did you, uh, did you just always enjoy watching it from afar or what was that Yeah, like? I,
1: I've always, I've been more of a watcher than a doer when it <laughs> comes to basketball. I was a terrible was past tense present tense I am a terrible basketball player um, I was helpless um, you know from a young age uh, especially I, I there was a brief spell there uh, I think in middle school where I tried to convince myself I could be um you know energy uh, defense mm-hmm. off the bench and, um, yeah
0: yeah yeah three 3d no, minus
1: the three and Yeah. But, uh, I haven't played competitively in a long time. I've done some, you know, sort of, uh, pick up and and whatnot, but, but not being good at it has never, uh, diminished (laughs) my love and passion for the game in general and and watching it. Um, so that was sort of what went into my book, how to watch basketball like a genius. Um, it's really a, a book about watching the game and, and why it's so, um, accessible and welcoming, uh, think people of all stripes um
0: yeah when you grew up watching did you have a team that you followed closely or were you kind of just a fan of everything related to the nba
1: yeah i mean i was i grew up uh in the 90s in chicago so it's kind of yeah which is a little unfair um (laughs) for me uh so at the time it it was uh pretty natural to glob on to the bulls then um and being young at that, at that time. And I I sort of was tricked into thinking that the bulls were just always going to be good and win pretty much every game. And, um, I was very much lured into, uh, that fandom, uh, which exists to this day. And I should probably seek restitution from Jerry (laughs) Reinstorf, uh, and upper bulls management for that. But I haven't done that yet.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine I grew up a little, I was born in the late 90s and 96. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I kind of missed watching Jordan at his peak. And, and um, I think for a lot of people my age, you know, we had the opportunity in the last year to watch The Last Dance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, as a basketball fan, as someone who played, like I always appreciated Michael Jordan, um, but I've always kind of understood that there was just something different about having actually watched him. During that time, uh, at his peak, dominating the best players in the world, um, so it, it's kind of you know that that documentary really gave people like me and my generation a chance to to really see it and see everything that was going on around it in in one space. Um, yeah, I mean, it I was
1: want... it was a, a sorry, it was it was a, just you know no, a, a, an all encompassing cultural phenomenon the the Bulls yeah. back then, which I think is is sort of hard to convey. I think now the media landscape and. Is is more fractured, and and so it's it would be harder for any one person or any one team to sort of dominate like that. But um in, in a sort of meta way, the fact that when the last dance came on early in the pandemic, it seemed that everyone was watching it, it was the thing that people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Sports really weren't being played at the time, so that sort of was a nice representation of what it was like 365 yeah. days a year with the Bulls of basically. That's what everyone talks about. Yeah,
0: yeah. I never even th- I never really thought about that. And you know, we we had uh, Greeny on here on an mm-hmm. earlier episode of the show, and he talked about covering the Bulls in the '90s and um, and just what that was like. And, and even then, covering it during the pandemic when there were no live sports, that docu series was treated as live sports. Yeah. Because, you know, for me, I remember I, I would plan out my week. I'd be like, oh, they can't wait till Sunday. What am I gonna do till mm-hmm. Sunday? Yeah, uh, cuz exactly. it was the only constant at that point when everything was up in the air and it was like Jordan became that figure in my life for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Interesting how that happens. But
1: Yeah, it's it's funny he, he somehow managed to become the the star of the early pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, you know, your book How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius released released on March 2nd of this year, 2021. What was it like to release this book? You know, during a pandemic, um, was there anything kind of strange about that? Had this been something that you've been wanting to do for a long time, or was this a product of having more time in quarantine?
1: Yeah, no, it's funny. I um, it it, it was weird. I, I I can't deny that. Um, you know, it came out this year, so it was late in the pandemic, and 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 others. I think who released books. Um, when the pandemic was starting and, and people didn't really know what was going on and things were closed you know even now you know a lot of bookstores are open for browsing um you know socially distanced browsing so there's there's that aspect and i did a you know zoom events but um so it wasn't too weird for me i think just because i had seen others do it before me mm-hmm. and, and we'd all kind of we've all in all aspects of our lives adjusted um, the thing that that um, I think is, is kind of more relevant to my experience writing the book was, was I didn't, I wrote most of the book during the lockdown and during pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote, you know, I think it was sent in my draft, um, I believe late October, early November, I might get getting that wrong, but I wrote most of it and did most of the interviews and research during the, the kind of real sort of, uh, um, quarantine days, uh, which was, it helped me, you know, stay sane. I got to talk to all these fascinating, interesting people about basketball. And, and it was a time when I know a lot of people were struggling and and not kind of getting to have the social interactions that they're used to. But I, I had this, this outlet of, of being able to talk to people and it it kept me sane. I gotta admit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) I, I want to get more into the book itself. Um, because for me reading it, um, I thought I knew basketball. Like I, I've, I've watched so much basketball, I've played basketball, I love everything about it, but sometimes you don't think about, you know, the basic origin of the sport. You don't question, oh, how did people start thinking to pass to each other? Or like, what are the original 13 rules of the game? What was it like when somebody dunked for the first time? Things like that, that, you know, our, our relationship with basketball in the NBA is this high speed, high intensity, uh, super creative game. But your book really kind of breaks it down to how we got here. Um, yeah. And I don't know how you'd like to kind of introduce that, but I think, you know, you say it so well in your book. Um, well, maybe thank we you. Start kind of in the beginning.
1: No, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. It's, um, I think we take for granted how young basketball is um, invented in the late 1800s. It's the only major sport that, you know, we can actually trace back to a single inventor. You look at something like baseball or football, those are um, sports that evolved over centuries from different folk traditions and other games, you know, football from rugby, baseball from cricket, et cetera, et cetera. And, and basketball really was a, a sort of one day, uh, the first game of basketball was played. We know where it was, we yeah. know when it happened, we know the score, one to nothing, um, and <laughs> so it, 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 basketball gives us this unique opportunity to, um, really track its history from day one. Um, there are some things that are, are murkier than others. And yeah, um, like the murder, it, it, I
0: thought that was interesting with the murder story, Yeah, <laughs> the, the two different stories about the, the way the first game
1: went. Yeah. It's, and, um, it's, it's obviously, you know, uh, even it's, it's hard to find good footage of early NBA games, um, mm-hmm. you know, to say the least, but uh, we have a, a pretty good idea of, of what's happened and how it happened. And it's not I mean, it, it, I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. It's a it's a funny story at times, which I, I enjoyed. And it's just sort of interesting to, as you as you put it pretty, pretty nicely, um, sit back and, and, and watch the game and, and think about why why things are the way they are. I mean, why the backboard exists is one of my, my favorite yeah. things I found out from, from doing research and it's, it's not for bang shots. It's not so Tim Duncan could have a Hall of Fame mm-hmm. career. Um, it's because early spectators would reach over the balcony and swat the ball away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a game that's full of all these surprises that, that are, are, are right there for us to, to find and, and uncover and, and relearn.
0: One of my favorites, that is, this was just so simple. Was uh, when Naismith nailed the peach baskets to the lower balcony in the gym. That's what set the benchmark for it being ten foot yep. hoops.
1: Yep, just and that. that's
0: one of the very few things that has remained to this day. But you just, I feel like if you ask the majority of basketball fans, I would be, I would think that the number would be close to ninety, like five, maybe even more than that percent of basketball fans why the rims are ten feet high or why the hoops are ten feet. They wouldn't know
1: yeah it's a kind of thing that if you think about if the, if the springfield ymca gymnasium had the balcony set to 12 feet um would there just not be dunking anymore i, I mean would would there be would they have to yeah. have it had to lower it uh would the sport have taken off like it did it's it was just a kind of little moment of of chance which the first days of basketball are, are, are all up to fortune and chance and one kind of weird, uh, Canadian, uh, gym teacher getting lucky.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about, uh, what he had hoped for when he created basketball, kind of what his goals were with the game?
1: Yeah. He had a very, very simple goal, which was to stop his students from beating the crap out of each other. He was tasked with teaching this class of, uh, particularly rambunctious young students. Uh, it was a in the middle of a very bad snowy winter in New England, and, and so they had to be stuck inside, and there weren't many indoor games for people to let off steam. Um, mm-hmm. And he had to invent one that would basically be an outlet for these young men, but also uh, be able to be played in close quarters without everyone basically dying. Yeah. Um, and so he had to sort of take that series of um, of, of requirements and he sat down and, and came up with the rules for basketball. His original 13 rules are pretty different than what the game is today, but mm-hmm. he got a bunch of things right and it was fun. And the fact that it was fun meant that those jerks kept wanting to play and, and, and basketball just grew. It's crazy.
0: I think one of the things that, was thought to me, was that the game was designed to be static. It was to eliminate <laughs> kind of so much of the, the roughness, the back and forth, the um, chaos that erupts in sports. And this one was designed to kind of take that all out. Yes. How did we get to this point where there must have been something about this game of basketball that piqued people's curiosity and led them to find loopholes and be creative to find ways to kind of tweak the game. Totally. Um, What do you think some of that is? What do you think that is about basketball that kind of lends itself to that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, if you're thinking about the, what the early basketball games look like, because one of the rules was you couldn't move with a ball. Um, Mm -hmm. It's almost like ultimate Frisbee um, where you get the Frisbee, you're not allowed to move and everything sort of stops. Um, And so the, the game, there is fluidity that exists without, moving with the ball there's the passing obviously there's Mm -hmm. shooting rebounding however the game i guess just kind of begs for more and uh the story of the first dribbling is is a very funny one it was uh the yale team uh who were a very successful good team in the late 1800s um clearly were sick of being static and stagnant Mm uh so they devised a way to get around the rule that you couldn't move with the ball and that was dribbling or as they called it passing to themselves um it mm-hmm. was a cheat it was a sort of uh kind of uh funny way around the rules but it made the game better and rather than sort of stand there and say this is a travesty you're breaking the rules you're breaking my rules uh, in Naismith's uh case people were like hey this is pretty cool let's keep doing it and and that's sort of been the spirit of the game it's it leans into evolution. It leans into um, improvements uh, and mostly just based on players experimenting within those rules or outside of them.
0: Yeah. And it it seems like those rule changes, uh, you know, over the course of the history of basketball, uh, they were modified to make the game more interesting to spectators Mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, to create that excitement a little bit more and, and kind of see the reaction of the fans and then, make you know implement those rule changes based on that um isn't that kind of strange doesn't seem like it's a little bit of a backwards approach where most times sports would kind of set the rules
1: regardless of the
0: spectator interest
1: totally and and it's funny because you know naismith's um original sort of intentions were so humble uh and so minor um but he still knew that in order for the game to survive and to you know, in his mind, survive meant just being played. You know, by young people at YMCA's mm-hmm. around the country. He didn't think it'd be a yeah. second biggest sport in the world. He just knew that it had to be fun to watch because you have people watching it get interested, and they're going to want to play it. Um, so from day one, the spectators' experience was was taken extremely seriously and and, and valued. Um, and it's the kind of thing that. Uh, has to be responsible for some of of the games rise. And, and to this day, that's how we talk about it is the game getting more or less fun to watch when you talk about the three pointer and, you know, there's always the generational arguments about that. It always comes back to um, the fans watching. I mean, it's, it's funny. You don't know one asks the players, do you like shooting more threes? Yeah. I mean, it's, it comes down to us.
0: Yeah. And no, I think and something you said was that, you know, Naismith, he never intended for it to get to this, this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, was thinking of it being in YMCA's across the country. And um, I thought it was interesting, actually, that it said that he was it in, it was introduced to Japan in 1900 and China in 1895, which is a lot earlier than I ever yeah. knew basketball was Me taken too. international, but still don't think he ever saw it getting to this point where it's the second biggest sport in the world. He said, there's no place in basketball for the egotist. What do you think he would say about today's game that is much more focused on players and egos and entertainment and all that—it's much less about just the sport.
1: Yeah, I think I think he would like the the sense of self-expression from the players. I think he would like the fact that it, the game is focused on that because he was always pro-player, anti. Coach. I mean, when he coached at Kansas, he barely coached. He thought that coaches shouldn't do anything. Um, you know, they had a losing record. The inventor of the game had a losing record at, at, at Kansas. Um, and, and so I think he, he would have thought it was pretty cool to, you know, see players experimenting and, and really sort of showing out. Uh, but he was, you know, on record as being very much against the corporatism, especially, I guess, you know, in um, the college game yeah so i think he'd be pretty dismayed with the ncaa being a billion dollar industry and and it becoming you know this monster as it is but he also couldn't comprehend any of this i mean yeah I, i don't even know what he i'm trying to do the math here about how um you know whether or not he he would have seen dunks but how old he would have been pretty old in his life yeah. before he saw the first dunk um so yeah i i think you know it, it, he would have been thrilled about its growth and the fact that i mean he'd be he's the kind of person i think he'd be happiest at like rucker park just watching people yeah. playing for the sake of having fun i think that's what he'd gravitate towards more than you know obviously the uh no totally. march madness uh type things
0: it, it is kind of crazy to think about where it started and where it is. But what's interesting, one of the most interesting things to me is there was this kind of shift, right? And in the NBA in the 1950s, um, I feel like what was going on there was a very interesting point in time for the game of basketball. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about what that time frame was like for the NBA Uh, and when we started seeing some significant changes to the game the shot clock invention, things like that, that really kind of started to push us closer and closer to where we are today.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, when the NBA started, it was, you know, um, an amalgamation of, of existing leagues. Um, it didn't sort of uh, skyrocket to success. It would, had a lot of problems in his early days, namely stalling. That was probably the biggest uh, mm-hmm. impediment um, because there was no shot clock, as you mentioned, when a team would have the lead, they could pretty much just dribble out the air of the ball. Um, and it resulted in really slow, boring games. Um, the, uh, there was a, a particularly famous game where it was uh, mm-hmm. finished 19 to 18. Um, and that's what inspired Danny Biazzone, who is the owner of the, one of the team's uh, early teams called the Syracuse Nationals. Um, he was just this chain-smoking Italian guy, who owned a bowling alley, and his side gig was running an NBA team. Um, And he thought, well, a shot clock makes sense. And and he did some very simple math on the back of a barroom napkin, uh, literally, the bar at at the bowling alley. Um, He found a box score for a game he liked. He found how many shots were taken. He did a little basic division with the 48 minutes, and he realized that, okay, the fun game was they took one shot for every 24 seconds. That's what it should be took a while for him to convince the rest of the league Mm to sort of uh, go on board with it. But, but inventing the shot clock was one of those um, kind of miracle fixes Uh, that the game immediately became more fast paced, more fun, essentially became the game we, we enjoy today. Um, So you had that, you had jump shooting, which, which wasn't really part of the early game. It didn't come into basketball into the mid um, mid century. Um, And so you had, you know, this, this post-war, sort of boom of, uh, the NBA sort, um, kind of figuring itself out and, uh, discovering how to make basketball a marketable and entertaining sport for, for fans. It took a while, uh, you really didn't kind of, you know, the the eighties and and the nineties is when it really sort of took off to be the behemoth it is today. But, but the, the 1950s, as you mentioned, was a, a real turning point for the sport in general.
0: It's totally a off I mean, It's not off, off topic all the way, but it reminds me a lot of the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell. <laughs> and I think a lot about, I kind of, when I was reading it and reading about the owner, uh, Danny, I was thinking about, you know, Jackie Moon and all those gimmicky things he was doing just to try to fill the, you know, fill the stands or the first time there was a dunk, just all those things that, you know, you really see like the entertainment and the sport kind of starting to collide and, and totally. build together. Um, And I think that what you said that, you know, the shot clock, the invention of that, it immediately led to, you know, the increase in scoring and fans started responding and and showing out in attendance. And even today, I feel like that's one of the most referenced points constantly on air. You know, they always talk about the modern era referring to, you know, the shot clock era. And again, just understanding that it was a a guy in his bowling alley, riding on (laughs) on a napkin. Yeah, that made this change,
1: and it's funny. It, it, it's important to, to sort of note that he wasn't a player. I mean, he didn't play basketball. He just was an old guy who watched it, and he knew what made for an entertaining sport. And I do think you know that if <laughs> you, the, the the reason there was stalling is because coaches coached for stalling because their objective was to win games. Yeah, I mean that's that's their objective. Someone like Danny Biasone who wants to put butts in seats he knew that there had to be something more you know the the, the goal was not for the Syracuse Nationals to win every game if that were the case yeah. he would devised a perfect way to stall uh he figured out a way to make the game better for everyone and it's it's uh it's because of him that that you know we can actually uh uh sit down and watch a game that that goes over 50 points
0: <laughs> yeah well thank thank god for that yeah um one of the, the interesting things that also kind of stood out to me was thinking about uh, the evolution of the shot clock and how teams uh, utilize it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a lot of different teams. And I'm going to cite the San Antonio Spurs, a team that knows how to work through the shot clock to get the best pass, the best, I mean, the best passes, the best open looks, uh, to play through different players, ultimately, you know, to use most of that shot clock to their advantage to get the best shot. In today's game, And this is even weird for me growing up playing basketball. It's very Mm -hmm. different. Now you can come down the court with 24 seconds on the shot clock and heave up a 35 footer. And it's not necessarily a bad shot. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think that means for the evolution of the game? Do you
1: think it's more exciting that way? It's hard to say. And I I always worry that I'll sound like a cranky old timer because I kind (laughs) of am a cranky old timer. Um, The early in the shot clock stuff. I mean, you really get to see it with the, the, Um, the Suns in the uh, mid-2000s and it's funny to look at their stats and and look at modern stats and they'd be one of the slower teams in today's NBA which is astounding Um, you know it's the kind of thing that uh, it's it's good and bad Uh, I love watching Steph play I love watching Damian Lillard um, Trey Young when they pull up and you, you know they come just over the half court line and they start to load up their shot and you just think, Oh my God, they're not going to. And it's just, you know, it's one of the coolest moments in the game. It's something that didn't really exist until, you know, the last 10 years or so where where guys would just be pulling up from the logo, uh, taking shots. And it works because for them, because they can hit it. Um, And I think that's fine. I think it's obviously frustrating when you just see teams clinking threes early in the shot clock over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a problem, but when you get to the playoffs and things matter more, you do see, I think, you know, and and things tighten up more. um, The game does sort of revert more back to what's, what can we get? What can we use here in the 24 seconds? Not always the case, obviously. um, But that's just sort of the genius of the 24 second shot clock though, is that when teams do take the full 24 seconds, it, it's a nice chunk of time. It doesn't seem like you're waiting forever. Even when we're used yeah, to these true. early, early shot clock plays, when a, a team uses the full 24 seconds, it's, it's, there's still a sense of urgency there. Um, unlike, I mean, if you remember when the college game had 35 seconds, yeah. um, that was much different story.
0: A little longer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, you brought up in your book too, talking a, a bit about the Houston Rockets with Mike D'Antoni and, and James Harden and kind of their style of play. And I feel like, you know, they, their approach to basketball definitely started to, to change the game uh, where, you know, this extinction of the big man, uh, the center position kind of no longer made sense to them and other teams kind of started to adapt as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were on that verge of that game seven against the Warriors, (laughs) where if they were going to the finals, they might've really, you know, there's, that would have been the culmination of all that work, all of that change. Um, that i think would have really set the nba in, into motion to follow their path um but they fell short i think they missed what 27 threes in a row mm-hmm. yeah i mean it was and that was miserable to watch
1: yes it was that was um
0: like oh
1: and, and 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 so in, in in the book a lot of what i do and a lot of what the book is based around is, is 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 i talk to experts in seemingly unrelated yeah. fields about the game because i i do think that Um, it's a, it's a kind of thing that the basketball is is so accessible that so many different people can watch it and have their own sort of spin on it and take on it. That I think is winds up being relevant just because the game's design um, allows for that. And, Mm -hmm. and, and the person I, I, I really enjoy talking to about the three point line um, and, and, and that specific uh, game that you mentioned as uh, Kurt Goldsberry, um, who basketball fans will know for his, his, his writing on, on the sport, but you know, he's, he's a cartographer, he's a map maker. That's his job. He was a professor. Um, and he was sort of one of the first people to map out shot charts and came to the realization that, Oh my gosh, we're about to hit this period of yes. the game where it's going to be nonstop threes. Um, and he was, was very much against that. And he was so relieved and, and, and thought it was karma um, when the rockets sort of uh, collapsed in on themselves there and it's it, and statistically it, it's, um, it's as he points out when you watch a game with more three pointers you watch a game with more missed shots. Um, yeah it, and 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 that was a perfect example of, of the worst case scenario when the three pointer gets out of control
0: yeah no it was definitely out of control uh, I, that's one of those games that I think I'll never forget watching just because I remember. I couldn't believe that it was that bad. I mean, I think you'd think, all right, if you're just going to be throwing up shots, eventually you're going to go cold, but 27 straight misses in a game seven to go to the NBA finals. That's very jarring. That's something that that definitely stands out. And that's, you know, that speaks
1: to the ethos of of the Rockets. You know, usually uh, (laughs) any other team that misses 10 threes in a row, that's when they sort of reset and think, okay, we got to figure something else out. Let's start driving. Let's start going to the foul line. Let's try something new. But the Rockets were so programmed to this specific way of playing basketball, they were like a uh, you know a, a broken computer or something. They just mm-hmm. said, kept saying error, error, just keep going, jack up shots. Yeah.
0: Do you think that you know? I think one of the, the NBA has been again playing with these ideas of, of changing. Uh, maybe you know people talk about moving the three-point line back. Mm-hmm. People have talked about a four-point play. You know, like a, a four-point shot. Are those things you think could potentially make their way into the league, or or would be beneficial or harmful? What's your view on those?
1: I'm not a fan of the four-point shot um, because three points, as as we've yeah we've seen, is is more than enough incentive. Um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't stop. Uh, it it it, yeah. it encourages players plenty. Um, Moving the three-point line back is interesting. Uh, one of the ideas that that Kirk Goldsberry um, came up with, it, which I think is pretty brilliant, is to move it based on mathematically yeah. where on the floor it is actually, you know, the three-point percentage would be um, uh, effectively worth the extra distance, um, and that's something that every season you can you can move around, uh, which I thought was a super interesting yeah, an idea, yeah. um, and it's one that he explains much better so uh pick up the book and read it if you want to hear a better explanation <laughs> of that but um it's uh it's it's the thing that i do yeah definitely not a four-point play moving it back is interesting and, and there's other aspects that could change the elam ending um yeah which we've seen in the last couple all-star games and i i speak with nick can elam in the in the can you explain yeah, that a little bit for, oh, people for sure more yeah familiar? it sounds complicated but in in practice is. is very simple. Yeah. Um, it's uh, so this guy, Nick Elam, who's a, uh, he was a math teacher. He's a, currently a professor at Ball State uh, was watching a um, uh, ACC tournament game uh, decades ago and, and was getting frustrated with the constant fouling at the end. Um, it was to stop the clock and to, you know, put the other team at the line and try to mount a comeback, come um, which I think everyone can agree is one of the more frustrating parts of the sport. And he, over time invented what he calls the Elam ending, um, which the shot clock, or the, excuse me, the game clock turns off after a certain point, I believe four minutes uh, in, in, in the college mm-hmm. iteration. Um, and rather than sort of whoever wins at the end of the, the game, um, the, there's a target score that's created where a, a certain amount of points, let's say seven points is added to the leading, scores, um, leading team's score. So the first team to reach the target score uh, wins. It allows for comebacks um, and it doesn't incentivize fouling or stopping at the clock because there is no clock at that point. Um, And it was the
0: the hack-a-shack and and all that stuff. Exactly. Slowed the game down.
1: Um, And and it was used in the all-star game last year was the first time. And it was a huge success. Mm -hmm. Um, All-star game infamously, you know, no defense, uh, lackadaisical playing, kind of pointless. But with this ending, I mean, there were players diving all over the place. It was, you know, mm-hmm. there was a reason to really play defense constantly through every possession. Um, every point mattered, you know, so much. And so this it was a, a brilliant solution to a problem that came about late, you know, came about in, in a way that Naismith, for example, could have never foreseen um, mm-hmm. as Nick Elam tells me in, in the book it, it's basketball should have been on a you know a, regulated by a clock in the early t- days because players were bad at basketball the first game yeah. was one nothing if you had a target score you would have taken millennia <laughs> for them to reach it um, but as the sport evolved and players got better and the scores got higher that sort of needed to change and so the Elam ending is an example of something that I think even more so than moving the, the three-point line I personally would love to see that full you know established mm-hmm. in the game permanently i mean why not how,
0: how do you think we'd go about incorporating that Do you think you know the all-star games of the first place mm-hmm. it, it goes through a trial period and then do you think it makes its way into summer league it makes its way into the g league and then to the nba what do you think the path is for that
1: yeah i think you kind of you, that was a pretty good one right you we just suggested i mean <laughs> yeah. the all-star game getting it there was a huge first step yeah um mainly because what i said earlier is it's something that doesn't make sense on paper when i first read about it i thought this is stupid uh yeah. why the hell are they doing this you know people are gonna be doing math in their heads during the game which <laughs> then you see it being played and you go okay this makes yeah. total sense and it's great um but yeah i think that, you know summer league preseason games it is a huge uh you know, dramatic change from the game. So having it actually happen is, is you know, it, it would be a, a pretty big ask. But you know, things change in the game. The three-point line didn't exist before in the NBA before 1978. Um, you know, yeah, that's it's it's the game's not going to look like it does today in 20 years. And and it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways I have from from reading your book is you know, the, the game we've come to, to understand and be so attached to, um, it won't be that way in 20 years. Yeah. You know, it, it might be different in 10 years, honestly, the way it's moving. Um, and I think that's a, a huge product of the creativity that exists in this game and, and how these players are constantly finding ways uh, to adapt or, you know, some ways good, some ways bad, flopping. Flopping yeah. is another thing that you cover Uh, that's a big issue and you know you have defensive players flopping flying around the court getting fined you have offensive players you know who know how to sell contact and can kind of manipulate the refs into giving them the calls that they want Um, I'm not sure what what you do about that one I don't know if you have any thoughts on that but to me that's a that one's a real problem uh in my opinion when I watch the game
1: yeah and and it's 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 a problem that that's that's um I think best assessed in degrees, Um, you know, because you're going to players are going to sell contact. You do a little bit, you know, I don't think that's the end of the world Um, completely making a meal of it. Yeah. Yes. That's a problem. But then on the other hand, you run the risk of getting caught. Um, I, I speak to a a Mm -hmm. soap opera casting director in in the book to kind of get her, uh, her kind of, uh, um, take on on on, on floppers and, and how their performances are but it really is it's it's a it's also a matter of not knowing fully uh, you know there was a study done that that mark cuban actually funded that found out that players do topple over pretty easily and they're not faking it um, the way mm-hmm. when you know the physics of it if you're standing still for a charge um yeah you're gonna you're gonna yeah. fall over and your arms are gonna fly to the side mm-hmm. I and mean, that's not faking it I do think that um, video review uh, is, as as everyone can agree, out of control. Um, I think it, yeah. the fact that there is the centralized NBA referee center in Secaucus, New Jersey, that they should have more power and the ability to sort of make these calls more immediately and as they're happening and kind of get that word to the refs at the arenas quicker. There's no need to sort of have the refs huddle around the screen by the side of the court when they're already doing that. And and, yeah,
0: that's one of the things that I always wondered why, if if they have people dedicated to that and they're sitting in a, you know, in Sakakis and that's their whole job and they don't have to deal with the chaos of an NBA game. How can we then have to sit there while they throw the monitor and review and call people and just, just drags on and on.
1: My guess is we'll get there eventually. Um, you know, it'll, we'll have to sit through a few more years of Jeff Van Gundy mm-hmm. complaining about yeah. it, but but we'll get there. Yeah, I hope.
0: Well, I mean, I don't want to give everything away from your book, <laughs> uh, but I do want to ask. You know, you you did have some incredibly interesting conversations with people who uh, who analyze the game in a in a really unique way. Um, is there anything from those conversations that really stands out to you that you think would be interesting to share with people listening to this?
1: Yeah, I, I think. Um, when I spoke with an astrophysicist about team defense, um, and it made me realize sort of how difficult it is to watch, to, to identify in the moment good team defense, um, individual defense. When a guy you know locks a, a dribbler down mm-hmm. and you know blocks a shot, you know, that's 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 kind of easy and, and obvious. But good team defense is is basically about the recognition of patterns and co- cohesive collective symphony of movements between five players that are you hear the term on a rope because they're Mm. so connected um and the astrophysicist who whose whose job it is to understand uh far off cosmic phenomena that you can't see that you have to just intuit Mm. and 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 kind of go from there and and he talked to me about how he pictures good team defense and and what he sees and 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 talking to him and, and he he had a he thinks it looks like a iridescent turtle shell. If you think about all the sort mm-hmm. of um, patterns on, a, on the back of a turtle shell, as, as players sort of moving in little circles mm-hmm. and, and, and working to push, uh, push the offense to the perimeter, um, it's a protective shell in, in, in actuality. And, and, I, and I kind of thought that was an almost poetic and, and kind of beautiful way to, to approach something that, that is hard to understand.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And I thought even to to further echo that, I remember one of the things said was that, you know, great defense requires great discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, it's knowing when not to do something that, you know, you might have a a initial reaction to, but it's that pullback, you know, it's that discipline to not do it. Um, And then identifying those key moments uh, when, you know, when to to not make a decision or to make, when to not make reaction or to react. Um, I thought that was really, really important.
1: And yeah, and, and you think about a great, you know, great block, you know, you'll you'll say that's the, you know, defensive play of the game or something. And yeah. then if you sit down and really watch the entire play, you'll think, well, he shouldn't have gotten to that position in the first place. Yeah. There should yeah. have, you know, been a block. Why was that even, you know, he was late on his rotation. So yeah. it's a kind of thing that is such a simple self-explanatory almost game that has so much nuance, which goes back to, I think, the genius of it and why we'll be watching it for centuries yeah well not you and i but (laughs) humans will be
0: (laughs) well you never know at this point you never know yeah we'll see how long we're (laughs) we'll be able to find some new uh, technology to live forever but do you think that basketball can become the most popular sport in the world
1: that's a good question i think it has um all the uh the makings of, of 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 the most popular sport in the world it's simple it's accessible like soccer you can play it almost you know Anywhere, I think soccer has a little bit of an advantage, given that mm-hmm. you can set up two backpacks as goals yeah. and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I think to me, it's the only sport that has a chance, um, and I love soccer as well. Um, and, and that'll be tough to overcome. I don't think uh, uh, Naismith would be too disappointed in knowing it's the second most popular sport in the world. But True. yeah, the simplicity of it and and the accessibility is is what it takes and. And unless unless there's overnight some sort of aspect of the game they introduce that, that makes it uh, um, harder for people to play, which I don't think uh, I can't even imagine what that would be, um, it's going to keep growing and, and, and it'll be you know fun to see if the trajectory is, is, is fast and catches up to soccer or, or, or merely uh, keeps it in second place.
0: Yeah, I, time will tell and, and I think it's definitely moving in that direction so we will it'll be interesting to see. Um, that's everything I have for you today. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to get across on this episode, but feel free to do so.
1: No, thanks for, for having me on. Um, I'll say the book's title again, How to Watch Basketball yeah, yeah. Like a Genius. Um,
0: Where can people get it?
1: Wherever books are sold. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I hope it's a fun read. I think the history of basketball is something that uh, is a, is a pretty funny story in its own right. And, and I, I hope I do it justice, but, um, yeah, it's, it was, it was a, it was a blast to write. Uh, and, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to do it. So I'm just happy about that.
0: No, the book is amazing. I highly recommend it for basketball fans and even for non-basketball fans that, you know, are just curious it, it I think it tackles it in such a unique way. And it, it really brings a fresh perspective to the game that I think anyone can appreciate Um, so yeah, so I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and and to have this conversation today. My pleasure. Thank you. Of course. Hope to have you on again soon. Great. All right. Take care. This podcast is presented by Bristol Studio, sound editing by Rashad Allen, music by James Grissom. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.